five, four, three. And welcome back to Not the Public Podcast. Bruce Dobigan with you once again. Thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, joined today, kind of an interesting guy I've known for a long time. Mostly we talk about hockey. Uh, but I don't think there's anybody in Canada who is more attuned to uh, the political situation in Russia. Uh, he was born in Russia. Uh, it travels there numerous times to the CBC. Uh, has been behind the camera most of the time, but occasionally in front of the camera. Uh, I thought nobody better to talk about Vladimir Putin, the situation with Russia, uh, as we end out the Obama years and we head into the Trudeau years and the transition into uh, perhaps a new universe. And uh, so welcome, Alex Sprinson. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to Not the Public Podcast. Was, good, to, good to be in Calgary. <laughs> and it is. It, it's good to have you here for the, for the input conference documentaries and all that sort of stuff from around the world. Um, you, as I mentioned, you were born in, in, in uh, the Soviet Union, which is, of course, uh, now Russia. Uh, you have known tyrants of all sorts who ran Russia. Uh, put Vladimir Putin in context for us. Who is Vladimir Putin in the context of Russian history? Well, he's been uh, the effective leader for now 17 years. So he's pretty damn important. I mean, he is, in terms of just length, in terms of his longevity, he is, he's been there longer than Khrushchev was, who was a pretty significant Soviet leader between uh, Stalin and Brezhnev. There was a guy named Brezhnev that people may remember <laughs> of a certain age. He hasn't quite gotten to the Brezhnev uh, time yet, but he's getting very close. I mean, Brezhnev was there actually for exactly 17 years, roughly 18 years. So he will be, he'll undoubtedly be, be there because he's there, there till the 2018. He'll almost certainly, quote unquote, run for the next election. We can talk about why I put mm. quotes around that. Uh, which yes, is, this is radio, so we did the air yes, quotes. The yes, air quotes. So, so, so you knew that. I, yeah. I said the word quotes, so <laughs> you can imagine what I look like when I said that. Um, but he'll almost certainly be there till 2024. And that would give him, uh, because that's the next time there is another so-called presidential election, mm. and he, would not, he wouldn't be able, he'd have to change the constitution because... He has kind of figured out that he can run twice in a row, then he has to take time off, as he sort of did a few years ago, and then come back. My suspicion is that it'll probably be it, unless he changes the constitution. We're talking then about somebody who has run this country for 24, 25 years. That will actually beat uh, Stalin's. That's even more than I was going to yes. say Stalin, uh, Catherine the Great. I mean, he's, he's in terms of longevity, he's going to pass those people, right? He is definitely going to pass them. And uh, in that sense, I mean, we don't know. One of the things that's... that's uh, uh, we're in the middle of it, in a sense, and and in the last two three years, things mm. have been disintegrating and going or degenerating uh, very rapidly in, mm. in terms of all kinds of measurements that we use for evaluating uh, a regime. Yeah. So if you and I talk in even two years, never mind in in eight, uh, it'll be a very different way mm. of of appraising his rule from what it is even now or what it was, let's say, five years ago. Yeah, I want to ask you about those in a, in a second, just the cost of trying to maintain an imperial uh, posture around the world, etc. But first of all, I'd like to get back to the, 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 the question. Put him in a context, though, for as of Russian leadership. Is he typical of the kind of people who've, who've led Russia? How, how is he the same and how is he different from others in the past? Yes, he is typical. I think that he, obviously things change with time, with technology, with the ways that, uh, for example, propaganda is propagated. Uh, but that's been the mark of uh, successful uh, Soviet and, and Russian leaders. I'm not going to go back to the czars. I mean, it's obviously that's a totally <laughs> different thing. But in the, you know, it's, next year is 100 years since the Russian Revolution. Yeah. Exactly 100 years. So that's kind of where I would start. You know, there was Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, mm. 
uh, Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and Putin. I'm basically giving you that. That's it. That these are the people who, yeah, who that's run the honor roll. who run the Soviet Union slash Russia over the last hundred years. Um, I think that uh, certainly in the last number of years, since he's essentially abandoned any pretense of of having a democracy, uh, and has depended to probably the greatest greatest extent of anything else on propaganda, he's very similar to Stalin, to uh, to Lenin before him, because mm -hmm. that's when the whole idea began. Mm -hmm. um, the, probably he's least li like uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, the two people who kind of started Russia a little bit towards democracy, and he interrupted it. Mm -hmm. As an outsider, when you study the history, look at the history of Russia or the Soviet Union, uh, as an outsider, you always say, "What is the, why is the tendency towards autocracy? Why is there a tendency towards almost tyranny or whatever it is? What is it about Russia that, that people need this kind of a leader? I don't think there's anything about uh, Russians, so to speak, uh, in, in the sense that there's nothing in particular. It's not genetic by any means. I, I think that there are people with... Russian last names, mm. so to speak, in, in the West, <laughs> who are just as successful as people with non-Russian last names. Right. So, I mean, it's not about that. But I think that part of the, obviously, the part of the problem is that Russia in its thousand years of existence, roughly, I mean, Moscow uh, has not had democracy, mm. ever really. I mean, there was a, a very short period of time, you could say, between the beginning of perestroika in the Soviet Union, let's say in 86, 87, sort of mm. around that period of time, until the maybe for the next 10 years, a little bit overlap, well, with Gorbachev and then when the Soviet Union collapsed, when Yeltsin became leader, I think that these were the makings of democracy. There were institutions, there were elections, yeah. there were undoubtedly imperfect. There was an enormous amount of corruption, but uh, there was a, a semblance, unquestionably, of free media. The courts were not independent, but you could sort of trust them a little bit. And um, so in that sense, uh, they had a chance. But other than that, they've always been used to having one leader, whether it's called a czar, whether it's called a general secretary of the Communist Party, whether mm -hmm. it's called a president. And these are the people that uh, tell the electorate, so to speak, that they're the answer to everything. And mm -hmm. even when there are problems, as there are many in, in Russia today, most people, or large percentage of people, as we think, we have no way of knowing because it's very difficult to measure. There are no uh, proper opinion polls or anything like that. But just knowing anecdotally, when I go there, when I speak to people, they tend to think of, of Putin, uh, the leader, as the answer to all the problems. And, and, and the problems occur when they admit that there are problems because of the people that he has appointed or the people who have been, quote-unquote, elected, right. and that he can fix it. <laughs> and that's always been the case. Yeah. There's always been the czar will figure this out. Sort of like the Maple Leafs ownership, the Toronto Maple Leafs ownership. But yeah, somebody else is always to blame. Do we have to get into that? <laughs> well, we're talking about we're talking about tyrannies. Um, yes. Who who is? I mean, we know the the KGB background, etc. But if from your, in your interpretation, who is Putin? Well, I mean, it's it, the the one thing about him is that he's been very mysterious. In in uh, we don't even know exactly uh, what he did for the KGB. We know sort of he was in Dresden in East Germany. He was in Leningrad when it was was Leningrad now it's Saint Petersburg. Um, but we don't know for sure. We know that he was not particularly distinguished by anything. The people who knew him at the time just speak to him as a kind of a very ordinary run-of-the-mill officer. He was, uh, I think, uh, lieutenant colonel. Mm. I mean, nothing uh, like that. But he was. Uh, it's obvious just from through his biography that he's always been very ambitious. He's smart. Mm. I mean, he is 
a clever man. And listening to him, you can tell that he is reasonably well-educated. I mean, mm -hmm. I would say that with your question about education or about comparing to other leaders, I think he's probably, he's definitely better educated than Brezhnev was, uh, probably uh, speaks better, mm -hmm. if I can put it that way, he's more articulate than, let's say, either Gorbachev or Yeltsin were. But, but at the same time, he grew up as a, as, as a KGB officer at, at a time when the KGB was a, was a lethal, mm. uh, illegal, uh, ruthless, murderous organization. There's mm. no other way of putting it. That's yeah. what they were. I mean, there were people in it, some exceptions, who were really involved in uh, dealing with certain security issues. But by and large, they were, they were there to put down um, any kind of dissidents in, in the population. And that's, that's him. Mm. I also think that he, just in, in what we've learned uh, about his wealth, and it's very difficult to argue that because there have been countless books and nothing direct, but you can see one of the obvious examples that's always brought up is that his friends, his close friends, the ones that he knew back before he even became a politician, have become billionaires, multi-billionaires, mm -hmm. for no reason whatsoever. I mean, there's nothing about <laughs> their backgrounds. You know, one of his uh, judo coach, for example, yeah. his judo, judo partners, uh, the, the, these brothers, they are multi-billionaires. Uh, it's, it's been documented countless times that they're corrupt. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, he is part of all that. So clearly, part of the whole scheme of his being in power has to do with wealth, with money, with greed. He's a man who likes on one hand being at the top, mm. probably just having power, but the other thing that in some ways is more important, he needs to have power in order to continue uh, being immune to prosecution, which he undoubtedly would be if somebody else came to power, and also to, to amass wealth, which mm. he likes. Yeah. Talking with Alex Brinson, a senior CBC uh, producer on TV on The National. And senior, I think in terms of my uh, longevity. Longevity, but yes. Longstanding. Yes. I'll call you a longstanding, yes. longstanding guy. Um, what, what's it like for you when you go back these days? Uh, you, you, you decided to go in Let me just start here. Usually you've been behind the camera. You decided to go in front of the camera uh, on, one, on one of the last documentaries you did when you went back to eastern Ukraine, which is where you were brought up, I presume. Uh, first of all, why did you decide to go in front of the camera and... What did you see and what do you see there now when you go? Well, it's very different. I mean, I have to admit that uh, the last few years, uh, particularly since the entire Ukrainian crisis, which I'll have to give a little context for, uh, it's been very difficult for me to go to Russia in the sense of uh, just dealing with people, people that I've known for years because mm -hmm. of their views. I mean, it's... it's uh, um, I was born in the Ukrainian... Uh, at the time, it was the Soviet Union, the eastern Ukrainian city yeah. of Kharkiv, which is, at the time, was, the, I think, the fifth largest city in the Soviet Union. It's the second largest city in Ukraine, so it's a pretty big city. I grew up there. I, I, I emigrated with my parents when I was 12. I went to school for five years. And when everything started in Ukraine a few years ago, when essentially Russia uh, simply uh, chopped off a piece of Ukraine and took it called Crimea, which mm -hmm. there are all kinds of excuses that have been given by uh, uh, the Russian regime about why they did this, but ultimately it wasn't theirs. Yeah. Uh, they just took it. As simple as that. Whatever uh, claim they may stake on it from 100 years ago or 50 <laughs> yes. years ago, they simply violated every possible international law and grabbed it. And it, it started a war, which they basically initiated in, mm -hmm. in another part of uh, Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, which is still kind of going on. I mean, there are parts of, of Ukraine not mm -hmm. too far from Kharkiv. 
Um, now, they've always, the, the Russians have, have made uh, arguments uh, to justify what they've been doing on the basis of this supposed linguistic divide right. in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is uh, obviously partly Ukrainian. It's the right. language, which is similar to Russian, but not the same. And because of the, for many, many historical reasons and what, was, what happened under the Soviet rule, a large chunk of it speaks Russian, and more of those live in eastern Ukraine. Yeah. In fact, the majority of people in eastern Ukraine speak Russian. Were, they, were these people who were moved into Ukraine by the Russian by the Soviet regime to 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 Russianize it? No, the no. way the Germans moved people into eastern Ukraine, or the Europe? way they did in the Baltic Republic. Right. No, it, okay. that's that's not the case. They just grew, uh, they well, came to speak eastern Russian. Eastern Ukraine actually was a Russian speaking even before the Russian Revolution. Right. I mean, it, it was. And some parts of it used to be part of quote-unquote Russia. Mm. I mean, Russia, Rus is the word, actually originated in Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine. But the point that I'm trying to make uh, is that it is not, it has never been a real issue in Ukraine. People right. want, if they wanted to speak Russian, they spoke Russian. If they want to speak Ukrainian, mm. they spoke. Most people speak both languages. It's not that difficult if you live there. It's not like French and English. They're much more similar. And so I wanted to tell, uh, to answer your question about being in front of the camera, it just seemed to, because normally I'm a producer, director, but in this particular case, it seemed to make sense for, for me to tell the story of what's happening in Ukraine through my own family history. And there are certain kinds of things, I mean, aside from uh, uh, my own uh, being in school and meeting my ex-classmates and seeing what right. they think about this in a part of Ukraine that, in theory, should be pro-Russian, and mm -hmm. it isn't. Mm -hmm. It maybe would have been had it not been for the way that Russia dealt with this entire issue. Uh, but also there are certain parts of my, my history to do with what happened to my grandfather and how he was caught in, uh, by the KGB back around the time of the war, how propaganda was used, which is very similar to the way propaganda is being used against Ukraine now. Uh, there are aspects uh, in my background to do with anti-Semitism, which is the reason that my family emigrated from the Soviet Union, which again have come up about uh, Ukraine. I mean, one of the just a little sidebar here, it's a tangent, but it's kind of interesting. Um, one of the arguments uh, that uh, the Putin regime has used against the current Ukrainian regime is its supposed anti-Semitism, that, <laughs> that you can't trust them. Well, the current, just recently, Ukraine had a change of prime ministers. The current prime minister of Ukraine is a Jew. His last name is Groisman. Uh -huh. He is very, very Jewish. I mean, he's visibly Jewish. Everybody in Ukraine knows that he's Jewish. Right. And they actually, he, he, is, he was appointed by the current president. Um, it, it's it's uh, something that has not uh, been, right. uh, you wouldn't think of that uh, right. about a state that is uh, deeply, rapidly anti-Semitic. Right. So anyway, th that's why I decided to go back and tell that story. Um, and now, what I, I've, I've been to Russia a couple of times since, it's very difficult because there's been, there's been these divisions. I mean, if we think about the kinds of divisions that we had uh, in uh, Quebec uh, prior to the two referendums in 1980 and 1995, you know, people, yep. you probably know about this because you've lived in Montreal. Uh, I was there it, for the first, but exactly. I voted in the first time. So, you know, people were divided. People couldn't get along. I mean, right. the friendships were broken. Some families were broken. Well, you multiply that by, by 100, and you will understand what's going on, because we're talking about violence, we're talking about people dying, yeah. and we're also talking to uh, a reaction to propaganda. And, and unfortunately, uh, for example, my wife, who's from there much more recently than I am, she has very close relatives in, in Moscow. Um, and 
we've known them since, well, I've known them since we've been married. It's more right. than 20 years. Um, these appeared to me over those years to be quite reasonable, educated people. Right. They weren't particularly uh, thrilled with the Putin regime. But since all of these events, they have completely gone into that camp. They, yeah. are, they have swallowed uh, pretty well all the propaganda uh, mm. about Ukraine and about the justification for taking Crimea and the war and so yeah. on. And it's very difficult to talk to people like that. I mean, it's difficult mm. for them to talk to us. I mean, we're from different worlds. Yeah. So, And I can only see it, frankly, from what I'm reading and seeing uh, right now, it can only get worse. Mm. It's, 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 it's not in any way getting better. Hey, everyone. It's Reese talking. I just want to take a moment to plug a couple of our other podcasts. First one is the Sound and Groove podcast, hosted by Evan. He breaks down the world of music, teaches you a little bit about the history of music. The guy has an encyclopedic knowledge, so I'm sure you'll learn a thing or two. The other podcast is On to Mike with Mace and Rice. That's hosted by CFL veteran Corey Mace, along with this beautiful guy right here. We talk about a few more of the gossipy stories in sports, off-the-cuff stuff, really fun, really funny. So we hope you tune in to either one of those shows. We hope you enjoy them. And now I will send you back to the show. So that begs the question, you're talking about foreign and and outside or whatever. That begs the question... (laughs) How much, if any of this, is uh, Putin's aggression in that, in this case, is attributable to the efforts of the current U.S. regime that's been in power, that's about to end eight years in power, that notably tried the reset button, got the reset word wrong on the button, etc. How much of this is, is Putin sensing an opportunity because of Obama, a, a sort of a pullback kind of thing that he's done? Uh, irrelevant. In my mm-hmm. view, largely irrelevant. It's a minor detail. All of this is domestic. Uh, it's very difficult. So he'd someone... have done this nonetheless. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Under, under the same circumstances, he would have had no choice. He's right. in a position where he has, as I mentioned before, he has destroyed all democratic institutions. Mm-hmm. And that, that happened long before uh, Obama came to power. It actually ha- happened under Bush. And I think if there was a time to, to actually deal with that, Mm. would have been then. For example, when uh, Russia began a war in, in Georgia, Georgia essentially. Yeah. So, and that was under, under, still under Bush. And also, as he was rising, that there was, you know, Bush had this encounter with him where he looked into his eyes and saw his oh, soul yeah. and you know, all of that stuff. <laughs> but I, I think that we overestimate... Probably the saw the soles of his feet. It was yeah, more like it, yes. Yeah. We overestimate the, the, real, the influence that the West can have on, on that country in that we're talking about someone who is essentially running for his life. He understands, I'm talking about Putin and the people around him, that that they cannot, you, you, you go far enough, you can't lose power. Right. And he went far enough a long time ago. I'm not talking about the last two years. And at that point, then you, you need to come up with ways to essentially subjugate your population without their knowing that you're doing this. Mm-hmm. And that, that only works for propaganda. You've, you've killed, I mean, there's no real feedback, there are no real elections. Everything is predetermined. Even when there were attempts to do, quote unquote, have real elections, there were incredible uh, examples of, mm-hmm. of uh, vote falsifying. That's why they had these uh, protests. So uh, the, 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 re- the reaction, for example, to Ukraine was uh, Ukraine had a kind of a change of government for whatever internal reasons. You know, people can debate whether it was right, right or wrong, but it was a sovereign country. But the regime understood that this was a great opportunity to show, to find an enemy, because that's right. what regimes like that do. They find right. external enemies, whether it's the United States, mm-hmm. which is 
always been that way, or not, I shouldn't say always, but under Putin the last, say, 10 years, not at the very beginning, um, uh, or whether it's Ukraine, you find a way to mobilize in, a, in, a, in an ideological sense your population mm -hmm. by pointing to people who want harm to you. Right. And, and that's... And you're of, going to do things like you get the Olympics or the World Cup of Soccer. Absolutely. Bread and circuses. Those are... Yes, it's bread and circuses and it's also opportunity for propaganda. Again, propaganda doesn't just work in a negative way. Sometimes you have to do positive things. You have to brag about something. Right. Why has it always been important for... Was it for the Soviet Union to mm -hmm. win in international sporting events? Uh, whether it was the Olympics. You know, we hear a lot about steroids. Yeah. Uh, why is it? Well, because it's if you were, I was in Sochi during the Olympics, and it was an enormous. It was it was it was actually coincided with all the crisis in Ukraine. But it was hilarious almost watching the 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 nationalism, the naked nationalism that was coming out. I mean, we sometimes uh, were were let's say um, a little bit I don't know ashamed about the somewhat jingoistic matter that our broadcasters yeah. were talking about, well, like Vancouver. Vancouver. For yes, us. Yeah. yes. <laughs> you know, it was a little bit too much. We thought. Multiply that by, by 10 or by 100. Uh, I mean, there were these uh, Korean skiers that the Russia had paid to ski for them. And there was this guy who was winning, uh, won, I think, a couple of gold medals. And he was like the biggest Russian in the yeah. history of the world. And, 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 and that's, that's what was incredibly important for them to do well. And they kind of managed to save something towards the end of the Olympics, win a bunch of yeah. medals. But on the other hand, it was an incredible embarrassment for them the way that the hockey uh, competition ended when they got out, yeah. got destroyed in the what is it, the quarterfinals yeah. by the Finns. So gave uh, up too. Yeah, in a sense. So it's it's you find ways, whether it's the Olympics, whether as you said the World Cup, yeah. um, that give you an opportunity to brag about something. Mm -hmm. But when you can't do that, then you find somebody to blame. A couple. I've been talking with Alex Sprinson from CBC, talking about uh, Russia, the former Soviet Union, uh, Putin. Um, you, you talked a minute ago about the challenges facing him and how he has to keep running to stay ahead of those challenges. We know about the demographic challenge. What are the other ones you're, you're talking about? Well, the economy. I mean, the, the, the economy, it's very difficult, no matter uh, how smart you are, so to speak, um, to maintain a proper economy uh, when there's no competition, when, the, when there's no accountability, when, right. when, when you only are surrounded by yes-men. And... When you don't have to do anything uh, that uh, it could somehow be punished, right? So Russian economy, uh, and just putting aside all these quote unquote political questions, is in deep, deep trouble. It's 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 never been diversified. It's a little bit actually ironically resembles the Alberta economy uh -huh. in, in, in a different way. But the Alberta economy obviously was largely energy based. On oil, yeah. and and the same thing was about yeah. Russia, and they've actually problems in that sense are very similar, mm -hmm. except that Russia doesn't have any diversification and the Russian economy is incredibly corrupt. Mm -hmm. And so a point comes when uh, the average person, you know, you could throw all the propaganda in the world, but there's a certain limit, right? I mean, there's a saturation point. And, I, and, and if you go to places outside Moscow, St. Petersburg, and a few other right. uh, places, uh, their standard of living is very, very poor. It, it's just, it's, 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 it's poor by maybe not by African standards, but certainly right. by the kind of country that Russia wants to see itself as, right. as a sort of a you know a first world country with a modern the kind of country they probably see reflected on their television, the the make up the made up world of, of of Russia that's on the television, the propaganda world, and then they compare it to what they've got, and I presume those are pretty starkly well, different. You know, you could look, you could lie and you could invent things about the West. 
and there's no way of figuring out, of testing it. But, but yeah. you can't tell someone who lives, let's say, on a, a $300 salary in a, in a Smolensk, a city in, in a kind of in southwestern Russia, that everything is hunky-dory because mm -hmm. he or she knows that it's, they're, they're not, yeah. that they can't afford to do this. I mean, you talk about demographic problem. Uh, one of the huge issues in Russia right now is, is uh, health care. I mean, yeah. it's, it's in theory, nominally it's free, but in fact, there's probably no more market-based, if I can even call it that, uh, healthcare system in any country in the world. There just isn't. I mean, you, you cannot, just to give you an example, in, in the, the city that I just mentioned, Smolensk, where my wife is from, uh, there, there, there have been countless examples where people call an ambulance for old people, one in particular, and they, the, one of the first questions they ask is how old the person is, and if the person's over 80, they just won't come. And right. they actually say it. And the reason they won't come is because they won't, get, they won't be paid. Yeah. In their minds, these people are too poor, their, their pension is low, it's not, it's not worth doing it. Yeah. So they, these people die. There's an enormous number of Russians, uh, and we often hear about how Russian men have an average uh, lifespan, uh, lifespan of, of under 60 years old. I think it's gone up a little bit in the last few years. But part of the reason is that something as simple, I mean, it's not simple, but something as basic as heart problems that we in the West fix yeah. readily. You know, you have a bypass operation and you live for another 20, 30, 40, whatever years. Mm -hmm. Well, they can't, these people, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. So a lot of people in Russia die needlessly. But, but I mean, the, there's no doubt that the economy and, and, and how uh, he managed to, manages to juggle all of that, mm -hmm. the, the need to stay in power, the need to continue to steal yeah. for him and his cronies, the need to uh, satisfy those elites who've been used to um, living well and living, and you know, the, the sanctions by the West, uh, in my view, that right. the one kind of sanction that, that has been, uh, that is not strong enough, but, but that the idea behind is, mm -hmm. is very good, is, is, is not letting these people come to the West, make right. it more difficult, not get visas. There's no doubt that's important because these people keep their money in the West. We read about offshore accounts, and, and so for them not to be able to come here is a problem. And I don't know if the West is going to continue doing this. Who knows? I'm, right. I'm not completely confident. But Two, two, two final things. Uh, we talked about Bush. We talked about Obama. Um, we have the prospect. Well, we, Hillary's already dealt with him, so we have some sense of that. We have the prospect of a Trump. Let's assume a certain competency in Trump. Uh, he seems to think he can do business with Putin. Is is there is there a, a, a groundwork for doing business with Putin at that level? No, no. I mean, I don't look. You do business. You do certain things that you have to do. But what I'm saying is that I don't think it's relevant. I, I you know I I don't look. I don't know if by some miracle Trump becomes president. I don't think that he's going to be that different a president from all the other presidents. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I don't think that he's going to make concessions to Putin. I mean, there's a Congress. Right. There, are, there are other institutions. There are checks and balances. I just don't see it changing dramatically. Right. And in fact, you know, he just the other day he said something nasty to Putin about right. like, planes flying near American planes. So I, I don't, again, I think that the West, there's no doubt that the West can have effect on Russia in the ways that I just described. Right. Uh, more than anything, I think that by instituting... Um, give you a primitive example, which I actually think would be very effective, is to uh, find 3,000 uh, rich Russians connected to the regime and simply not let them into any Western country. Right. Simple as that. I think that would have a much greater effect on uh, influence what Putin does and whether or not the elites around him will continue accepting what right. he's doing than anything that we can do in terms of the arms race or nasty things that we say about them. Right. 
or any agreements we make with them related to Syria or any of these things. Because you're, go you're going where I wanted to go with the last question, which is how does he fall? I don't, you know, I'm never going to make any kind of predictions like this. I think how could he fall? How will he, but how could he What I'm saying is that I think that, you know, I'll put it to you this way. I think his regime is on its last legs, which could last for another 30 years. Right. <laughs> strong legs. Uh, yes, very strong legs. <laughs> I think that uh, the most likely scenario that I see is is uh, what we call a palace coup. I mean, I don't I don't see the Russian people rising up. I mean, I think that they're probably going to find a way to kind of continue bribing the Russian people mm -hmm. sufficiently for them to not blame Putin, but to blame you know these other local people. Uh, but I do think that the time may come when. The, the various people around him, whether it's political or economic, who do have power, it's very difficult to quantify that right. power, but they have significance and influence, they may decide that it's just not worth it, that the confrontation with the West right. and, the, and, and the risks yeah. with the, the Russian population of going to a point when, what I, what I was talking about, the right. saturation point for the economy, are not worth it. And in that case, that is the scenario uh, the, it's a kind of scenario that, uh, in a way, that happened to Khrushchev. Right. You know, could, could, mean, the, could, could the uh, uh, um, adventuring in Syria and some of this, this trappings of imperial stuff be one of the things that would trigger it, i.e. the cost of, of, of trying to maintain that? Is, is that one of the things that could exacerbate I this? I think that the more likely uh, impetus for something like this would be uh, internal. It would be uh, something as seemingly trivial as some... Uh, bureaucrat connected to the regime uh, driving a car and killing three pedestrians and then as, as has happened right. countless times right. trying to cover it up and not being able to anymore because it, yeah. it becomes big and then th there's a reaction or not not paying money salaries to teachers or mm -hmm. uh, uh, pensioners <laughs> being affected I think right. that's much more likely now those are connected because as you say obviously when you spend <coughs> money on things like Syria that lessens the amount of money right. you've got for everything else. But, you know, I don't, uh, having said all that, and, and, and seeing what I see and seeing the reactions to Putin and his, his, his seeming popularity, which I think is more to do with fear than anything else, um, I don't see anything in, in, imminent. Okay. A final question. Uh, when you're there, you're asking questions. You're not always asking necessarily polite questions. You ever... Ever afraid at all when you when you when you're there as a journalist? I mean, they they've thought nothing of eliminating certain people. Do you ever f feel any fear when you're trying to report? No, I haven't. I mean, I think that the one thing that has undoubtedly changed, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a maybe a minor thing from the point of view of how people live there, but for us who work there, I honestly have never, you know, in all my years of going there. Now, granted, as I say, I haven't been there very much in the last few years. And in the last, let's say, two years, and I think it's a huge change. I mean, that's yeah. a, that's so it's very difficult to know what it would be like, let's say, going in a year or two if, if there's some major event like this. But in the years previous that I've gone, um, no, I, 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 you know, I've been more than anything kind of frustrated because questions aren't answered or I can't get yeah. certain people to talk. But I have never, no, I have never felt. Uh, it's not a dangerous place for a journalist. Well, I don't, I don't, I know. It is. Look, if you start digging into various kinds of monetary aspects of the regime, and especially internally, if you're okay. a local Russian journalist, then right. yes, there's absolutely a danger. But if you're a Westerner, uh, it's there have been very few examples of Westerners who've been harmed in any significant way. They make it go up, but mm. that's about it. 
Alex Schmitzen, thank you very much uh, for coming on Not the Public Podcast. Interesting stuff. Uh, any plans to go to Russia again soon? Uh, nothing imminent, but you never know. I mean, it's, it depends on what, what we get. As the Prime Minister of Britain once said, events, my dear boy, events. That's what changes the world. Thanks very much. My pleasure.